1: And I've said before, I know men who drink who don't violate women. That is a possibility. It doesn't come with the drink that you forget how to treat a person.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Chanel Miller about rape culture.
1: I was astounded by how people seem to treat rape as the given, saying,
0: so why didn't you protect yourself better?
2: Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor.
0: It can be rough to find really great modern furniture and decor that's affordable, feels as good as it looks, and just generally makes you happy. I recently came across Industry West, which is all about making it easy to discover and buy bold design that can keep up with modern life. From dining and lounge chairs to sofas and end tables, Industry West offers high quality products and goes to great lengths to ensure customer happiness. They also work as easily with the trade, providing industry best warranty and lead times. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with killer design, Visit Industry West. Design Matters listeners can now get 20% off. Just visit industrywest.com and enter promo code DESIGNMATTERS at checkout. It was a case that started a national conversation about rape on college campuses. The rapist was a 19-year-old Stanford student named Brock Turner. To protect her identity... The woman he assaulted was referred to, in court documents and the media, as Emily Doe. When Brock Turner was sentenced to a mere six months in prison, it set off a media firestorm and, two years later, voters recalled the judge in the case. The day after the sentencing, Emily Doe's victim impact statement was published and it went viral. We now know that Emily Doe is Chanel Miller. Late this summer, Chanel Miller appeared on 60 Minutes, and she recently released a memoir called Know My Name. The show will begin today with Chanel reading an excerpt from the beginning of her book.
1: I am shy. In elementary school, for a play about a safari, everyone else was an animal. I was grass. I've never asked a question in a large lecture hall— You can find me hidden in the corner of any exercise class. I'll apologize if you bump into me. I'll accept every pamphlet you hand out on the street. I've always rolled my shopping cart back to its place of origin. If there's no more half-and-half on the counter at the coffee shop, I'll drink my coffee black. If I sleep over, the blankets will look like they've never been touched. I've never thrown my own birthday party. I'll put on three sweaters before I ask you to turn on the heat. I'm okay with losing board games. I stuff my coins haphazardly into my purse to avoid holding up the checkout line. When I was little, I wanted to grow up and become a mascot, so I'd have the freedom to dance without being seen. I was the only elementary school student to be elected as a conflict manager two years in a row. My job was to wear a green vest every recess, patrolling the playground. If anyone had an insolvable dispute, they'd find me, and I'd teach them about I messages, such as, I feel blank, when you blank. Once a kindergartner approached me, said everyone got ten seconds on the tire swing, but when she swung, kids counted one cat, two cat, three cat, and when the boys swung, they counted one hippopotamus, two hippopotamus, longer turns. I declared, from that day forward, everyone would count one tiger, two tiger. My whole life, I've counted in tigers. Chanel Miller, thank you for joining me today on Design
0: Matters. Thank you, Debbie. I'm so happy to be here with you. It is an honor to have you here. Um, Chanel, the reason I wanted you to read this specific introduction to your memoir, Know My Name, is that establishes a bit about who you were before the events of January seventeenth, twenty fifteen, that changed so much of your life. Um, I'd like to start today's interview with some additional questions about your early life. Is that okay?
1: Yes, wonderful.
0: You were born in Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. Your dad is a retired therapist Mm -hmm. who worked six days a week, 12 hours a day listening to people. Your mom is a writer who has authored many books in Chinese, which at the time of your writing your book were books that you could not actually read. Mm -hmm. How did your parents first meet? They met at a
1: New Year's party in Palo Alto, and they shared a little kiss. And six months later, they
0: were married. Wow. So love at first sight, like absolute knee-knocking love at first sight. Yes. Apparently, my
1: dad knew when he saw her that he was going to marry her. I don't know how fluffed up it is, but I
0: believe him because they're still married. (laughs) Um, You've described your house as one where everything grows and all spills are forgiven, where anyone is welcome at any time of the day. Your family is four planets orbiting the same small universe. Mm -hmm. If you had a slogan, it would be, feel free to do your own thing. Your home is unconventional, closeness while maintaining independence. Home is where darkness could not get in. Chanel, what is it like to grow up in a family like that?
1: Oh, well, I loved that our walls were allowed to be drawn on. I could express whatever I wanted on the wall in Sharpie. <laughs> in Sharpie? <laughs> in Sharpie. Wow, that's And in commitment. the bathroom. Wow. Yeah, and with the idea that it can always be painted over if it needs to be. But at least I had that freedom and I had a canvas as big as a wall growing up, and that was really wonderful. I remember one time I had this idea that I would create a little movie theater at home, and I took all my parents' VCRs and I hid them in their bedroom, which was the only room with a TV. And I went to my bedroom, which connected to the backyard, and I had this screen window, right? And I cut a little semicircle at the bottom of the screen, just like movie ticket booths, how they have (sighs) that little... Yes. And I called my dad. I said, Dad, go to the backyard, and come to my window. And he, he came around and was like, oh, you cut <laughs> you cut the screen. I was like, no, you you get to see a movie now, which, do you want to see Apollo 13? Do you want to see A Bug's Life? Like, let me know. And then he he just selected a movie. And I wrote up a little ticket on a piece of paper, and I slid it through the screen, and I escorted him to his bedroom, turned off all the lights, <laughs> trapped him in there. And each time he would, like, sneak out and try and go back to gardening, and I'd have to, like, escort him back inside. But the fact that they would see these things and play into them rather than reprimand me meant so much as a kid because you are... Your creativity is being validated instead of closed off or punished.
0: Did you always feel unconditionally loved?
1: Yeah. I never was made for a second to question that love, and I think that's what has allowed me now to go to the darker places, to speak very openly about difficult things I've experienced because I still have this foundation to go back
0: to. Yeah, you were well-parented. <laughs> <laughs> you write how your grandma and stated that you were born with a pencil in your hand and mm-hmm. you still draw all the time. You draw when you're upset, when you're bored, when you're sad. And when you were growing up, as you said, your parents let you draw all over the walls. What kinds of things were you drawing? I loved to draw mailboxes because of their very
1: distinct shape, like with the little red like flag. Whether or not you have mail. Yeah, yeah. but the like cylindrical shapes and the rectangles of the envelopes spilling out. I love drawing mailboxes and I love drawing houses. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be an architect because I love making houses. And I remember it was at Bear Valley Ski Lodge with my family. And my dad came into the hotel room. He's like, Chanel, there's an architect downstairs in the lobby by the fire. Do you want to go meet him? And I was like, yes, this is my dream. And I came down and he had like blueprints spread all over the table. And they were just like blue lines and numbers and math. And I was like, ew, like what the freaking heck is this? I was like, I'm not going to be an architect, but I need to keep drawing. <laughs> I only like drawing.
0: I do not like math. Is it true when you blanked an answer on a physics test, you draw a man shrugging, saying you simply do not know and use the remaining time to shade the bags under your character's eyes? Yes, because
1: <laughs> because I was so bad at physics, but I also knew I was not stupid and it was almost my way of saying, like, hey, look, I'm not good at this, but I am good at this. So I'm not completely worthless. I just—this is my strength, so I'll just slip it in here. How did your teachers respond? <laughs> I mean, on a, they're proud of me now, you know? like <laughs> I'm, I'm doing good, so. <laughs> good, good.
0: Now, in one of the illustrations that you created on your new Instagram account— mm-hmm. Uh, Chanel Miller Know My Name. You share that depression has been an on-and-off companion in your life. How did you manage through your early experiences of depression?
1: You know, I love drawing all kinds of little creatures and people. I was looking through my old notebooks, and I saw this little person lying in bed that I had drawn, and underneath it just said, being sad is a very tiring thing. And I draw to remind myself that there's so much that I contain that I cannot see. And I always feel like I can't give up on myself because it's not fair to all the little creatures that are inhabiting me that want to be expressed and that if I give up, then they will never be able to like see the light and make it onto the page and that's not fair to them. And so drawing just reminds me that There's a lot going on even when my mind is really cloudy, thinking about adult things and serious court stuff. I still have that really strong
0: desire to create, you know, silly things. You referred to depression and non-depression as riding with slugs or horses Mm -hmm. in this piece that I'm referring to. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I think I alternate between riding slugs and horses, meaning I go in and out of these phases where I'm productive or not, where I enjoy waking up in the morning or not, and I've tried really hard not to categorize these things or to think of depression as failing to be the default, as if the default is happiness, and when you're depressed, you're failing, when really it's an equal state of being as happiness,
0: And I'm okay with fluctuating through both. You received your Bachelor of Arts degree in literature from the College of Creative Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. You've written how you stacked your bookshelves with writers, including Virginia Woolf, Joan Mm -hmm. Didion, Wendell Berry, Mary Oliver, Miranda July. And you got so engrossed in what you were reading, you sometimes slept in the library. Yeah. What made you decide to major in literature and not art? Oh my gosh.
1: So I did start in art, okay, but it's so expensive to buy oil paints. And the classes were super traditional. And one time I was taking a drawing class and we had to draw plants in the courtyard. And I also drew a fire hydrant because that's what I saw. And the teacher said, Have, Can you think of a piece, like a significant piece that has a fire hydrant? I said, N- Not. Not right now. And he was like, well, maybe there's a reason for that. And I was like, so rude. And so I just thought this is too confining. I'll draw on my own. And I love reading and writing. And that's, you know, I'm equally as passionate. So I'll just switch over to that, to that division. And I continued to make art. I did a lot of printmaking. um, But but then I, I was basically in endless book clubs
0: after that. Well, I happen to think that there is a very famous Warhol painting of a fire hydrant. Literally a fire hydrant. Yeah, we should just email that to him. (laughs) Um, You stated that when you wrote Ordrew, the world slowed and you forgot everything that existed outside. At that point in your life, what did you want to do professionally? I really did want to write children's books. I
1: remember, like, growing up—do you know Remy Mm Charlotte? Yeah, like, he had this book— arm-in-arm, arm, and the first page is, you know, two the octopuses, pusses, octopi, maybe? <laughs> uh, they w- could be whatever <laughs> we wanted to be. That's the
0: great thing about language.
1: Octopuses, they walk down the aisle, arm in arm and arm in arm and I thought it was so clever to have all those arms and the intricacy with which it was drawn. I remember he had this page of little kids playing, and they said, isn't it better to be out in the snow rather than in a warm bed? And then it cut to a bedroom of all these little people under a quilt. And they're like, isn't it better to be in the warm bed than out in the snow? And I was like, oh, perspective. Like, And the snow on the page, he had drawn each snowball like one-fourth the size of a lentil and like filled the entire page. And I just remember thinking... Adults are usually so busy, and this man cares so much about drawing these teeny tiny little snowballs. And I was like, I want to be that. I want to spend my time doing that. And Grandma Anne, who was in the book, took me to a book signing to meet him when I was very little. And it was the first time I realized that there are people creating these books. Because usually when you go into a bookstore, you're like, these are objects that have materialized out of the universe, at least when you're a kid, to meet the person responsible. I understood very early on that it was a possibility, and so it's something that I've always wanted to do. And maybe out of college, I wouldn't have been able to do it immediately. I didn't, I was working at a Chinese restaurant.
0: (laughs) But it's always what I've wanted. After you graduated, you moved back home, and after, I guess, the Chinese restaurant, you went to work at an internet Mm -hmm. startup. Um, What kind of work were you doing at that point?
1: Okay, so I did a lot of office management, but they were also allowing me to create a lot of content. And so I was allowed to draw all kinds of things for the app, like weird birds with buck teeth and sumo wrestlers. It was educational, so I got to do a little portrait of John Muir and uh, stuff about Kwanzaa and Peru. So it it was super imaginative and I really appreciated that
0: environment. How do you envision your life unfolding at that time?
1: Yeah, I think I just would have grown up in that office with those people. And I still visit them and they welcome me back. And it's so nice to feel like I didn't lose them. That was really important to me and helped me accept that I sort of went off on my own trajectory. That I can have all of it, <laughs> that, I, that I don't have to accumulate so many losses as I set off in my own direction. You know, I, I've gotten messages from people that say, I wish your life could have been boring, but I'm glad it's not. Just saying, like, I wish you could have just had an ordinary, wonderful, you know, to have not been upheaved so early on. Not boring, boring.
0: Do you know what I'm trying to say? I know exactly okay, what you mean. Okay. There are many times in your book where you detail the quotidian moments mm. in life yeah, so perfectly that it makes every moment, even especially the ordinary moments, so precious. Yeah. And that is what felt like was robbed from you in yeah. many ways. Yes. Um The evening of January 17th, 2015, that changed everything. Mm -hmm. For the possibility that some of my listeners might not be aware of the story, can you share a a, a top line that isn't too difficult for you to, to share? Sure. Of that night?
1: Yes. Yeah. I had gone to a fraternity party on Stanford campus. I had already graduated. I was with my younger sister and some of her friends. We were dancing super nutty just getting really silly having a good time and then you know I was out on the patio with her I was drinking lukewarm beer it tasted awful and then that's where my memory ends and I didn't know anyone at the party I hadn't been talking to anyone except my sister and her friends and um next thing I know I'm in a hospital and I have blood on my hands, I realized I am not wearing any underwear, and my hair is completely embedded with pine needles that were scratching my neck and falling out into the gurney that I was in. Um, And then I underwent a multi-hour, extremely invasive um, forensic exam where all evidence was collected and continued to find other bruises and scratches on my body that were photographed that would later be exhibited in court. Um, Yeah, so that's what happened. So you were
0: raped. I was raped. Um, We're going to talk a a lot about the aftermath, Mm -hmm. which is beautifully, heartbreakingly, and poignantly articulated in your book, Know My Name. In the introduction to the book, you state that the book is not a personal indictment, not a clapback, a blacklist, or a rehashing. I want to ask you, what would be wrong if it were any of those things, (laughs) Chanel? It could have been. It would have been if I wrote it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think because I feel like I hear a lot of revenge narratives, and that to me still suggests that it's about him or going after him, or my pursuit of him, rather than centering it back on me, it becomes more of like a back and forth or like a cat and mouse. And I wanted the story to revolve around me. You know, I wanted to be selfish in that way and to redirect all that attention and to also say that there are thousands of him, right? Mm. I just wanted to focus on that because... People may argue, well, he's, like, done. He's, he's taken care of. You know, he's an individual that's off doing who knows what. So why are you still up and armed? It's because it's still happening, right? Yeah. This narrative repeats yeah. endlessly. And that's what I wanted to focus on is a greater picture rather than
0: me versus him battle. You were assaulted while you were unconscious mm-hmm. to... Young men, also Stanford students, came riding by on their bicycles, saw that you were unconscious and being assaulted and interrupted. Um, Brock Turner ran. The two young men caught him, Mm -hmm. called the police, made sure you were okay. An ambulance was called, and then you regained consciousness in the hospital. You were assaulted while you were in a blackout state and state, In other blackouts, I was responsible for acting a fool, but waking up to an empty McDonald's bag and crumbs on my chest was different than waking up with dried blood and clothes missing. In the obscurity of the blackout lived a pivotal difference. Rape required inflicting harm on somebody. The moment I was finally out of his hands, or rather when his hands slipped out of me, I was released back into my life but it was during that brief passing over, that period where he took the reins, where I lost everything. Chanel, how have you responded to people that somehow felt that the blackout was to blame? I
1: just continue to say, you will never convince me that it's okay to violate me. There's no justification that exists. I don't care what context it's under. You cannot make excuses for penetration without
0: consent, which is what it was. You state how people seemed angry with you Mm -hmm. and that you'd made yourself vulnerable more than the fact that he acted on your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And go on to write, drinking is not inherently immoral. A night of heavy drinking calls for Advil and water. But being drunk and raped seemed to call for condemnation. People were confounded that you had failed to protect yourself, which just incensed me. Um, how did you handle it? Yeah, I, I was astounded
1: by how people seemed to treat rape as the given, saying, we know this exists, it happens so often, you have a high chance of happening, it happening to you if you go to a fraternity party, so why didn't you protect yourself better? And I'm here asking, why do you expect that to be the common experience that we should constantly have to guard ourselves from? So on one hand, in the beginning, I was internalizing all of the negativity and critique, but at the same time, like my body was hurting. My body was upset. And later on, my body was exposed in photos. And I think it's not fair mentally to go after my body like this. Like, it needs me to take care of it. It needs me to nourish it and be better and ask more for it. And that's what I learned to do, to take care of myself.
0: When women drink to excess, they're blamed for what happens to them. But when men drink to excess (laughs) and harm women, the women are blamed. Yes. I still can't really wrap my brain around why that is the way it is in our culture today.
1: Yes, I
0: cannot either i
1: don't know why it's so hard for us to expect better or envision a world in which this doesn't happen and i've said before i know men who drink who don't violate women that is a possibility you know it's not yeah. like <laughs> it's it doesn't come with the drink that you forget how to treat a person right
0: after the assault you were given the choice Um, in a rather um, casual manner Mm. uh, as to whether or not you wanted to prosecute and you decided to do that. Um, But initially, after the assault, you didn't tell your parents. Mm -hmm. How come?
1: Mm, Protection. Always protection. I mean, I also didn't know what had happened to me, so I didn't have a narrative to provide for them. I wanted concrete facts before I told them anything. Otherwise, we're just spinning in our imaginations. But... Definitely protection. And, you know, I attempted to protect them from as much as I could for as long as I could until I realized I could not do it alone. If there's something that I learned, it is that I should have asked for help sooner. (laughs) You did take a lot on your shoulders. Yeah, and I, I talk about a bird metaphor in the book where birds fly in a V and the bird at the tip of the V, you know, feels the most amount of wind, and protects the birds in the back. And recently, my boyfriend and my two best friends from college held a book party for me and invited some of my college professors that I hadn't seen since graduation. And one of my professors, Kay Young, went up, and she just announced. (laughs) She just said, you can finally fold in your wings. Mm -hmm. And said, you can rest now. And she said, we're all strong enough to take care of ourselves. You've done your duty. And oh, it just felt so good because I think you're in battle mode for so long and you want everyone to be okay so badly. You don't know if things will be all right. And now they're all right. And we're on steady ground and I can rest.
0: Is it okay to still keep talking about, yeah, about yeah, this? Yeah. Okay. Technically, mm-hmm. after, after the assault, you found out a lot about the details of the assault while reading the newspaper online, as opposed to being contacted by the authorities, the hospital, and so forth. Do you know how the details got out to the press so quickly? Because the
1: police report was filed, which was then available to the public. But I didn't know that the report had been filed. I didn't know how the media even knows. I didn't even think it would be a story. I didn't know what the story was. Right. So... All of this was new to me and it was a very out-of-body experience to read online. I, it took a very long time to fully inhabit my body again. It's almost like I moved out and slowly I've been like putting in pieces of furniture again, like maybe I can settle in here
0: long term. But that took many years, yeah. In the articles that were published, uh, your perpetrator, Brock Turner, was referred to as the Stanford swimmer. Mm-hmm. He got a name and a face and a backstory, a whole narrative. Newspapers published details of all of his athletic achievements. Um, you note that the photograph that accompanied the articles could have doubled as a LinkedIn profile picture. That gave me a little chuckle um, <laughs> while I was you know, <laughs> nauseous. Um, the double standard was really clear here.
1: Yeah. It's sad because I sort of played into it at the beginning. I thought, oh no, I need more extracurriculars. I need to have done more. And it upsets me now that I felt like my worth had to be earned. So you didn't have enough accomplishments, therefore you weren't being described as such? Yes. I just didn't, I didn't have enough to show for myself that I didn't even come up against him. And what a terrible way of thinking. You know, I wanted to, yeah, I just, I thought, what do I have to offer? And I remember I mentioned in the book, there was a huge white pad of paper in the courtroom and I was called to testify. And I had to write down different timestamps on that paper with this big marker. But anytime I see blank spots of paper, I get like little tinglys. I love, like it's an opportunity. And I remember wishing that the jury would like yell out objects, and I could show you that I can draw anything. Like, I can draw a giraffe riding a scooter, wearing a scarf, like, eating sushi. I just felt like I had so much that I do have to offer and to to show you, but I didn't know how to tell anyone that.
0: People were terribly cruel to you online. Um, you grew deaf to the warm-hearted comments and the harsh ones grew louder. And you wrote this about the nasty comments. They trailed in like ants. A single one appeared. Suddenly I noticed a line. And then they were all inside my bowls and boxes and left out spoons. They were faceless dots, swarming, subtle, incessant, always reminding me I could never eliminate them me and all of these ants. Mm-hmm. At that point, you do share what happened with your family. Mm-hmm. How did they respond to all the cruelty online?
1: Mm, I think it hurt them, too. And it hurt me watching it hurt them. But it also it strengthened my resolve to be all right in spite of everything. And... I also think so much of that damage has slowly been undone by the countering voices that have appeared over time, right? So it's almost like once I released the statement, the ant-eaters came <laughs> and swept up all those ants. Even, like, thing- things I didn't even think of, like pine needles having them all in my hair, It did bother me to see them later on, to be in heavily wooded areas. And one of the letters I received was from a woman named Tanya, and she said, I want pine needles to be yours again, not something that was taken from you. They are innocuous pieces of nature, and they are everywhere. And I realized pine needles are... Everywhere. I will never be able to escape them. I will never be able to escape harsh voices. But she enclosed this beautiful photo she had taken of a pine tree with sunlight behind it. And I realized she's giving me the opportunity to at least be able to reshape how I see things. Right. So, of course, I still have a lot of negative memories and triggers as I move through the world, but I can reframe how I see them. I can see them through a more loving lens and remember that there are so many people who are trying their best to take care of me. And yeah, that's what helped. You know, those ant voices, they're ants, they're teeny. They are smishable. But they are insidious. They are insidious, <laughs> yeah. They're also endless and massive, but are just high in volume, right? Yeah. But, Let's make the man-man. Right? Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> um, you write heartbreakingly about what you referred to as the eventual rotation of selves that you experienced mm. in state. You can't fawn over your co-workers' photos of Maui by morning, slip away to battle your rapist by noon. It required two entirely different modes of being, different worries, rules, bosses, and emotions. And initially you were unwilling to give up working, um, but ultimately had to, um, yet at that point no one other than your immediate family and your boyfriend knew what had happened to you. You spent four years in that rotation of selves yeah. with no one knowing. Yeah, How lonely was it for you?
1: It was incredibly lonely, astonishingly lonely, especially in contrast to now. now that I am being nourished and by people and being able to converse face-to-face, I realize how much I was missing. It's sort of insane to me. I also... When I think of it now, when I was getting the rape kit done at the hospital, you're lying back, and there was a picture of a sailboat on the ceiling. And that was the single image of comfort. It was the only image that was provided to hold on to throughout the next year and a half. Like in the police room, police station, in the courtroom, in the waiting room, there's no art, there's no pictures. In all the brochures I was given, there's only like black and white serious photographs. And I remember thinking, like this is not my natural habitat. And I was so sad to be out of worlds where I had been drawing and now I was in a world where all those creative parts were dormant and mute there's no art no music no emotions that are allowed to be expressed no plants even in all of these spaces so being drained like that it's so essential to let more people in because they will literally remind you who you are because you will Go vacant inside. You will have no signals as you look around in those spaces of color to, like, revive yourself. That's why you need people to be like, I see the actual Chanel. And you just feel like you're being punished when you're in spaces like that. And those people will be there to help warm up those spaces and saying, no, we need to be in, like, sunnier
0: places. That's where you deserve to live. You were even told that you couldn't discuss the case with your sister, who was such a big part of the um, experience. And and I know that throughout the legal process, you write about what it felt like to always be trying to keep up, not to mess up, to learn court jargon, to pay attention, to follow the rules. What did you learn about the legal processes in place for victims of sexual assault?
1: I just don't. We need to be able to find a way to achieve justice without completely dehumanizing and debasing the victim. I feel like a lot of the reason I lived in isolation was due to fear. Fear of being, um, you know, if I shared with anyone and Brock's private investigator Spoke to my friend and didn't know my friend didn't know they were a private investigator, then they might have given out information and then felt bad about hurting me. You know, it's you're in an area you don't understand. And the only way to keep it contained is to not speak about it. And it's not okay to to not be able to even speak to your own family. You know, my sister wasn't treated as my sister in the courtroom. She was a fellow witness. Same with my boyfriend. I can't discuss the case with them. You know how insane that is? You weren't even allowed to be in the room when they testified. No, I was not. So I couldn't support her. There's a scene where I'm standing outside of the courtroom doors, staring through the windows at my sister, basically unable to breathe, wishing I could pull her out from there. But I couldn't. And even that
0: was something you were worried you were going to get in
1: trouble. Yeah, and then I left the whole way because they'll say, what are you doing here? You're not allowed to be here. It's just you're treated like consultants, like, come in here when we need you. Ask, you know, answer any question asked of you, and then you're dismissed. But it, you know, it really broke my family down for a long time, and every time we emerged, it's like we'd be floating, like completely untethered from any sense of, you know, we just didn't have our bearings. We would always be disoriented. We wouldn't want to speak. It's so... Terrible, And I I don't expect anyone to go through that.
0: You write about how your DA told you that women aren't preferred on juries of rape cases because they're likely to resist empathizing with the victim. Mm -hmm. That exploded my brain. (laughs) Um, How many women were ultimately in your jury? I think it was almost 50-50. And did he? I
1: think it was more men than women,
0: though. And is it because they are more judgmental? Or
1: Or just, I think there's this instinct to cate- put the victim in her own category and to hold her at arm's length and to feel to, safer. Yeah, mm. and to just say, I'm, you know, I have self-respect. I can restrain myself. I'm not reckless, I'm more intelligent. Whereas she, you know, failed to be all of those things, and that's why she's in that position. It's much harder to say we're on equal ground, and that could have happened to me too. Right. It can happen during the day or night, sober or drunk, right? So that's much scarier. It's much easier to corral it into she was a drunk girl wearing a dress at a frat. So of course,
0: right. Yeah, nobody criticizes how nice your house looks if your house gets burgled. <laughs> no. Like, gee, yeah. that, that house was really asking for it. Those curtains were yeah. like really. Why sort of wasn't it in more dilapidated? Interest. Yeah. yeah. Um, as a way to cope and get back to yourself, you went to the Rhode Island School of Design and took a summer printmaking course. Yeah. What was that like for you? What was it like getting back to working with your hands and making art?
1: So wonderful. Even just walking into the room and smelling the ink again, I was sort of like, okay, I'm home. Like things are going to be created. I loved that I was capable of output rather than just feeling like things were being taken all the time. Like where there was nothing before, now there were huge prints that were born from me. And That's why I put up all my prints on the walls to see, like, see, you are capable of so much of, like, infusing spaces that don't have color with insane amounts of color and imagery, right? So even if you're in places that are devoid of all of those things, you carry the ability to infuse them with the light they need again. So don't ever be tricked into thinking... You know, you will be without those things because you have them. And when you are given the privacy and comfort
0: to express yourself, they'll come out again. A pivotal moment in the book is when you are actually able to draw again. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you would read us that little excerpt. Sure. It was on one of these nights,
1: after hours of lying still, that I tossed off my blankets and picked up a pencil. I drew the two bicycles that had found me bringing them to life, spoke by spoke. I had learned their names in the police report, Carl Frederick Arndt and Peter Lars Johnson. I drew smooth handlebars, tiny pedals, lumpy asymmetrical wheels. I stuck it to the wall above my pillow, pressing it flat, an omen of protection, send help. I rolled back into the sheets and took a breath. If they were out there, I could rest. I closed my eyes and drifted off to sleep. The next day, I agreed to go to therapy. How did therapy help you? Ooh, well, first of all, just it was the first time in 8 months that I had fully disclosed my story. I think even if you choose to tell a few people, you will still be telling filtered versions. It's very hard to fully lay it on the floor. That was the first time that I did that. And when it's out, you can finally look at it and see it more objectively as like, how do we tackle this thing, you know, that landed on my life rather than why am I so messed up inside? Why is everything distorted? Why can I function? It's just like, oh, this is an issue that was given to me and is altering me in ways. Let's figure out those ways um, that they're changing me and... Focus on them and fix them. Not fix, but make them better. You
0: stated that your therapist told you to hold your wounded self. Yeah. How hard was that for you to do?
1: It was extremely hard. And I don't think I fully understand what she meant until the verdict was read. And I was sitting in the courtroom so nervous about what the verdict would be. And when the jury finally said yes, and yes again, and yes again, I thought, why did I ever question myself? I felt like the self that was in the hospital, I had just fully abandoned her. I had neglected her over the year and a half. I had become all of those aunts that question and criticize her constantly. And I thought, why didn't I just hold her from the very beginning? Because that's what she needed and i should have cared for her earlier on oh but that's really hard to do chanel it is and i made a promise to myself then that i would i would (laughs) yeah
0: there seemed to be some confusion of your ethnicity in some of the court paperwork so much so that at one point you write about how you slammed a table with your fist threw back your chair and screamed i'm chinese how much do you think your ethnicity factored into the way you were treated I genuinely believe that I was underestimated.
1: I also believe that even if people don't openly admit it, they might have thought that as an Asian person, I would have been more easily dismissed. That even if the judge knew that I wouldn't be happy with the sentencing, it wasn't. It wouldn't cause an uproar. I wouldn't yell about it. I wouldn't announce it. I would sort of just slowly disappear. And, you know, being raised by my mom, I hear a lot about Asian mom, you know, tiger mom stereotypes that she never fit into. You know, it's because of her that I'm not afraid to fight. You know, she grew up in under a communist regime and fought for her right to speak freely and came here because she wanted to do that. You know, she can fight. Force is much greater than her, then I can fight for myself in this teeny, stinky, little stale courtroom.
0: It was very clear that Brock's ethnicity favored into the way he was treated, and you appropriately state the following. Instead of a 19-year-old Stanford athlete, let's imagine a Hispanic 19-year-old working in the kitchen of the fraternity commits the same crime. Does the story end differently? I don't think there's any doubt that the story would end differently. You no, know, it,
1: it was astonishing, you know, how quickly they humanized him, how they treated the assault as an isolated incident. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It, wasn't. it also wasn't. Yeah, there were patterns that indicated. Yeah. But just that that he was always on a good path And this was like he had exited at the wrong place and simply needed to be guided back. But with the right nourishment and instruction, he'd be back on his feet again. That's what it felt like. But there was never a single moment of reprimand. There was never, like, seeing him as a criminal or dangerous. He was just someone who had lost his way, right? And he was young and had so much promise, but he wasn't a threat. He wasn't capable of hurt. He was only capable of being confused and being drunk.
0: If he had owned up to what he had done right at the very, very start of this process, if he had apologized, do you think the outcome would have been different?
1: Yes, and I actually was expecting an apology at the very beginning when I learned... Someone had been caught running away. I was like, oh, well, thank God he was caught. And now he'll apologize. Because what is there to discuss? Like, I didn't even understand what the case would be. And so I was sort of waiting for him to approach my team or to settle. I, I never thought I'd have to testify, honestly. And I was ready for that apology, and to accept it also. And instead, you know, he pushed back harder and harder. And when things weren't going his way, they found more artillery. And it well, all, they found
0: lies. Yeah, right? yeah,
1: yeah. Or whatever they needed to get where they wanted to go, whatever the cost. I was never visible. And I felt that and I knew that. It still stuns me that I was able to cry in front of them and be naked on a screen and to sit feet from them, but to never have my presence acknowledged, that I have to work so hard to assert that I even exist, number one, and two, the body that I exist in deserves to be treated better, no matter how many times of pop champagne.
0: You write very powerfully how a friend of yours who had also been assaulted told you that This was your opportunity, an opportunity to make a difference for all assault victims. Can you read the paragraph after the realization?
1: Yes. For months, I'd regarded this case as a burden that had been placed on me, one I wanted to rid myself of. I was frustrated. Why do I have to do this? I don't have time. But in her eyes, this was a chance. This was what she'd tried to do four years ago only to be met with impatience and apathy, only to be worn out and set aside by authorities, until her best choice had been to leave, to force herself to forget. There had been a time she had tried hard to get to the place that I was in now. I had somehow reopened the way forward. You're the one who's going to do it. And I thought of her at 18, and I thought of what the guy did, and I understood what I had to do. Understood now what it meant.
0: How did that influence how you felt about the path forward?
1: Because even though I hated being inside the courtroom, I almost felt like I had leveled up, that so many people are turned away before even getting into this spot. And I thought, I need to continue down this path to see where it goes, because there is an idea that justice will be attained I need to see if that's true you know if they're promising that to all victims saying well if only you have enough evidence this is where you'd be well now I have the evidence are you going to give me justice
0: and the answer in the end was no Brock Turner was ultimately found guilty of three felonies you read a powerful victim's statement at the sentencing, yet he was only given a six-month sentence, which was really a three-month sentence because for every one day of good behavior he served, he would get one day off from the sentence. Um, so he got one month of jail for each of the three felonies. Uh, the judge in the case, Aaron Persky, stated that he didn't give Brock a longer sentence because it would have had a severe impact on him. Um, did you ever get the sense that the judge understood the severe impact the assault had on you?
1: No, and I think he also failed to calculate all that had been happening since the assault, all of the damage that was being accumulated in the aftermath. And that's what I think we tend to overlook, that we're so fixated on how, what are the dimensions of this bruise Rather, because we don't know how to measure internal damage, psychological damage, emotional damage, and it becomes the victim's responsibility to have to voice that, to let you even see that it's there. Otherwise, no one's going to think about it or even know about it. And so that's what I felt like I had to yell in my statement, that I'm continually hurting, that you have added to the hurt in so many ways. It didn't stay frozen In that night, it has leaked onto all the nights after, not only onto me, it has rippled out to my family. It has changed their lives in ways I still can't fully comprehend.
0: And all of that was being unaccounted for. Your remarkable victim statement went viral. I think at this point it's been read on BuzzFeed over 20 million times. It was reprinted in The New York Times and hundreds of other new pa- newspapers around the world. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio hosted a reading with his wife. California Congresswoman Jackie Speer led a one-hour reading on the House floor. Congressman Ted Poe of Texas said she wrote the Bible on what happens to sexual assault victims. The statement was translated into French, German, Portuguese, Spanish, and Japanese. The statement was performed in sign language. A feminist group in China posted photos of women holding signs, nobody earns the right to rape, it is still rape when he is a good swimmer. You received thousands of emails from around the world, and you've written how every message was pushing you closer to a space in which you were beginning to see yourself more clearly. Yet you also worried, and I'm wondering if you would read another excerpt from Know My Name about how you felt at that time. Assault buries the self. We lose sight of how and when
1: we are allowed to occupy space. We are made to doubt our abilities, disparaged when we speak. My statement had blazed, erupted, was indomitable. But I was holding a secret fear that there must be a cap, an end to this road, where they'd say, you have achieved enough, exit this way. I was waiting to be knocked back down to size, to the small place I imagined I belonged. I had grown up in the margins. In the media, Asian Americans were assigned side roles, submissive, soft-spoken, secondary characters. I had grown used to being unseen, to never being fully known. It did not feel possible that I could be the protagonist, The more recognition I gained, the more I felt I was not supposed to be on the receiving end of so much generosity. Yet people kept pulling me up and up until I heard from the highest house in our nation. The vice president was not lowering down to my level. He was lifting me up to bow with gratitude. What did it mean that he stopped to read my statement, that millions of people had paused what they were doing to take it in? I see the limitless potential of an incredibly talented young woman, full of possibility. I see the shoulders on which our dreams for the future rest. For the first time, I was beginning to understand what my dad meant when he said he was proud of me. I believe, out of the millions who knew I was brave and important,
0: I was the last to know it. Chanel, your work ultimately changed the law in California about what is considered rape. Can you share what that new law is? It
1: eliminates probation as an option when a victim is assaulted while unconscious. Thank you.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing that. You've written how trauma provides a special way of moving through time. Years fall away in an instant. We can summon terrorizing feelings if they are happening. We can summon terrorizing feelings as if they are happening in the present. Are you still experiencing that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the only difference is I'm
2: far
1: more in tune with how I'm doing. And I always check in with myself. I check in even in these interviews. Am I breathing okay? How's my heart rate? Are my hands clenched? You know, if I need to take a breath or slow it down, I do. And that self-monitoring is really different than before when I would hold things in for a really long time and they would explode out in different directions when it hit breaking point. Um, That general upkeep is what is helping me get through the days. And when I lapse, instead of being hard on myself for not being more productive or for showing up when I'm needed, I just say, you're already doing plenty. You've come so flipping far. You never forget that and continue to give yourself credit for that. And I do. And I go, this, I, I just accept that this is the fast as I can go. This is as much as I can do. And if I hit a point where I feel like I can't do anymore, it's not because I'm inadequate. It's because my body is asking for more nourishment from me. And I'm going to respect that. How has your art making helped this part of your recovery? Oh, like I said, it always felt like the art world and the court world were completely separate. And I want to continue to integrate them. I'm interested in adding art into those waiting rooms or on those pamphlets. You know, images can be really nourishing and humanizing. And I want to be able to express that with my little characters to treat them as little companions that people can find in those darker places so i will continue to create little armies of images that i hope will help people you know get more in touch with their emotional truths do you have other art projects brewing <laughs> i do can you tell us about any of them gosh even just being asked I've been given more opportunities to do art, and that's what I worried would not be possible, right? I thought I would be confined to speaking about one topic forever. And even the simple act of inquiry, like tell us more about your drawing, has meant so much to me and makes me understand that there's a lot of the future that
0: I'm excited to grow into, that people will allow me to grow into. The New Yorker stated this about Know My Name. Chanel Miller's writing debut may have been precipitated by her assault, but the final work devitalizes its horrific beginnings. No narrative is as persuasive as Miller's. There is no more self-effacing sobriety, no more conclusions plastering confusion and fury. Know her name, know her voice. Congratulations, Chanel. The book is now also a New York Times bestseller. I know one of the things that you talked about being so afraid of in your 60 Minutes interview was the possibility that you might never be able to write a children's book given the reputation that might follow you because of what happened. Do you think you'll be able to fulfill that dream of writing a children's book? Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Good. I'm wondering if you might be able to read one more piece for us today. Yes. Yeah. It is about how you view yourself and how to move forward. hmm
1: I struggle with how I'm supposed to live as a survivor, how to present my story and myself to the world, how much or how little to disclose. There have been numerous times I have not brought up my case because I do not want to upset anybody or spoil the mood, because I want to preserve your comfort, because I've been told that what I have to say is too dark, too upsetting, too targeting, too triggering. Let's tone it down. You will find society asking you for the happy ending, saying come back when you're better, when what you say can make us feel good, when you have something more uplifting, affirming. This ugliness was something I never asked for. It was dropped on me, and for a long time I worried it made me ugly too. It made me into a sad, unwelcome story that nobody wanted to hear. But when I wrote the ugly and painful parts into a statement, An incredible thing happened. The world did not plug up its ears. It opened itself to me.
0: Chanel Miller, thank you so much for sharing your remarkable spirit with me today. Thank you for changing the conversation about sexual assault and the laws around sexual assault. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
1: Thank you, Debbie. I
0: had a wonderful time sitting across from you. Chanel Miller's best-selling memoir is Know My Name. You can find out more about Chanel Miller's work on her website, chanel millercom and see her artwork and animations on her Instagram account, chanel miller know my name This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you
2: again soon. Special thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Industry West. If you love the podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wiley.